We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're talking to built environment professionals about the relationship between architects and builders and what it takes to make this fundamental collaboration successful. Our guest in this episode is registered architect and licensed builder Scott Flett from Scott Flett Architecture Workshop, based in Tasmania and New South Wales. Scott shares his approach to architecture with his building background and his tool belt, the creation of a brand new design product born from his experience working on roofs, and the building and design considerations that he went through on his parents' home in Tasmania. Let's jump in. All right, Scott, thank you so much for for joining me in Melbourne on the Hearing Architecture podcast. Welcome and thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Good stuff. So you're quite unique in the architecture profession because you started off as a builder, if I'm not mistaken, and now you're actually both. You're doing, you're a builder and an architect. Do you want to tell me a little bit about how you're marrying these two experiences and skill sets together? Uh, I'd like to say it was a, a big plan, but it, it, pr- it probably wasn't. Uh, I'd like to think there are many paths in architecture. Uh, I've taken, uh, I would like to think a traditional approach but it wasn't planned like that. Uh, I was just encouraged to learn about materials while I was at architecture school. And to be honest, I just really liked it. There were some parts of the building industry which I, I really enjoyed and I just um, just kept turning up. I have worked for uh, architects to get my architecture registration, but most of them were architects who also um, had, build, like, had building licenses. Uh, although I did spend some time in China working for architects too. But yes, I, I enjoy it because it gives me a lot of executive control. A lot of the projects that I always admired and loved when I was at architecture school, I noticed that a lot of those projects were actually built by architects. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very first lecture I ever had from a registered architect was from Phil Harris from Tropo Architects. Mm-hmm and he talked about building the green can, which is one of the early tropo jobs. And he spoke a lot about building his first work. And it was the first time I heard that architects are allowed to. You mean they're allowed to build? Cool, that's fun. I want to do that. You know? And I could, I could definitely sense that they felt that uh, often when other people thought that there might be some obstacles into building what they were trying to you know, do, mm. when they were talking about creative ideas, mm. that um, it was okay to actually, that you were allowed to build. Mm. And I thought that was really cool, to be honest. Yeah, it's a very traditional master architect or master builder kind of way of working. It seems like, you know, there's some of the older guys out there who are still doing amazing work, like Rick Laplastria, is still involved in in his practice in that way, actually being on site and talking through the details of, of their buildings. And is that something that you're that you're really inspired by? Uh, absolutely. So I didn't study under Rick Lepastria, but Rick Lepastria suggested to me to learn a material. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is how I first just started to be able to get on a building site. Uh, at the time, I was, I still am, infatuated with timber. Mm-hmm. 
I thought, oh, let's let's do some woodworking courses, or what, what electives can I do, you know, just outside of architecture, and then it just kept snowballing from there. I do believe it's a very traditional approach to architecture. These days, it's quite uncommon. I'd say most architects uh, think I'm a builder. Most builders think I'm an architect. Uh, so <laughs> generally speaking, it's uncommon in Australia. But that doesn't mean it wasn't uncommon you know, 50 to 100 years ago when perhaps the profession of architecture really was those who built a lot then uh, had the ability to change designs. So I think of it from a very traditional approach, but uh, at the same time, uh, I can't help but acknowledge that the professionalization of the industry, uh, it's very understandable uh, why it is separated. There are a few architect builders around Australia. Uh, I'd say that there are a lot of architects in Tasmania who've built a lot. And I, I certainly took a lot from that tradition of making uh, as part of design that's quite prevalent in Tasmania that doesn't quite exist in Australia. But having said that, there still is a little subculture of a few practicing architect builders. Yeah, and I guess one of the huge benefits can be that if an architect has designed something and detailed it, and then it gets to site, and someone might say, oh, the detail won't work. Some of these architects who, like yourself, who've had the building experience, you can either come down to site and you can have a more detailed conversation about that sort of thing with the actual materials, or you can draw together way forward. Is that is that the sort of one of the benefits when it comes to actual buildability? Absolutely. Like it means you can call bullshit on people who are older than you, who say you can't do that, and. For me, it just gave me creative control when other people often say it can't happen. Often what they're saying is, I don't want to do that because I think it is risky and I don't want to lose money. I feel one of the benefits of architecture school that we often forget about is that it teaches you to solve problems. And it's something that you know has to be said about design that having an engaged mind, just wanting to solve a problem is actually all you needed to do. There is also the aspect of design that the latest you make the decision, often it is the most intuitive. That is quite frustrating for other people when you're on a building site because they all want everything to be perfectly detailed so that they don't have to think, they can just subcontract it out. But that always puts good design uh, at risk. Sometimes the best person to make a decision on design in its most intuitive manner is on site and the person who is doing the construction. That requires an awful lot of trust in whoever is actually doing that building, uh, but it's something that I always enjoyed. It's probably my favorite thing about building is the everyday problem solving. Yeah, and I guess that's that's gotta be a, a really important thing that anyone doing a construction project would have to put into their process before they even get started to have that conversation with the builder saying, uh, and I've designed this thing. It might look different. It might have some design elements that you haven't seen before. Yeah. What do you think about that? You know, how do you feel? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I think there's a great place for humility to be put into that process. Uh, I like to think of a, what's the difference between a good and a bad builder? It's not that a good builder never makes mistakes. It's that everyone makes mistakes. It's what you do when you're confronted with making a mistake. That's what distinguishes it. I also like to think of making mistakes as, well, when someone has experience as a builder, 
I usually say that they've accumulated more fuck ups that please like use my experience that I have fucked up like so much more than you have. Uh, in fact, I'm like the best at fucking up. I've got like 10,000 fuck ups. So when we're on this site, I'm actually really good, well placed to help you move forward with the design agenda because I fucked up so much. And quite often I, I sort of talk to that with carpenters because it puts them at ease that it is okay to, you know, try, almost play, to try and find what is the best solution. But it does require some humility and also a bit of flexibility from the client and the architect to have a very strong relationship with the builder to try and focus on that the primary agenda is always what is the best design outcome. And that's what I love about it. Yeah, no, I think that element of play is so important and, and accepting that there's going to be discovering a way sometimes yeah, in, that, in the process. Yeah. And I've uh, really loved one of those early projects that you worked on that is a, a mobile project, I believe, where you can move it from site to site. Well, the Outback office, yeah, absolutely yeah. right. That was a very playful project for me. I was attempting to uh, resolve what I thought was a common failures in um, roof design. Mm. And I wanted to play around with uh, a, what I believe is a, a unique roof form. Uh, one of the issues I actually had on that project was a junction, an obtuse angled junction that is quite hard to uh, construct. Mm. I threw everything I possibly could at it and I was still unhappy with it and it actually led on to a new building product which I've recently invented. Yeah, great, okay. Well, do you want to tell us a little bit more about this new building product that you've invented? Sure, the origin story of why I wanted to attempt the Outback office comes from my experience as a builder and I was building a house that I, th I think most architects would be familiar with that it was inspired by a Glen Merkett section and that is a, it's a skillion roof that is oriented towards north. Inside it feels light and airy, uh, it's good passive design principles and uh, it has some of those you know, nostalgic qualities but also being constructed in a very elegant manner. And I've always admired his work and I thought that roof design uh, was not just a simple roof design but when simple becomes quite sublime and that is it didn't have any of the you know often design features that result in roof failure and that is it wasn't a butterfly roof it didn't have a parapet wall it didn't have any complicated junctions to resolve it had very simple lapped sheets of corrugated iron it had generous ease you know I thought the actual roof design of that simple skillion roof was perfect actually is what I thought and it's one of the reasons why I, I quite like I've always ad admired the, the work of Glenn Merkett because it had you know a simple and sublime and elegant characteristic of it mm. and on a few projects where they've uh, I've been installing these sort of portal frames that are inspired by the work uh, of that uh, they still had elements where like it still wasn't perfect and when I say that is that, you know, when you're building something, when something is quite unsatisfying, mm -hmm. it elicits, at least within me, like quite a lot of frustration and anger almost. Just like, I know this, what I'm going to build right now is going to cause an issue. And in this particular instance, one of the few issues relating to those, you know, the most simple of roofs is that leaf litter when it's under the canopy of trees it still builds up an, an enormous amount of leaf litter in the gutter and it does that in a matter of weeks and on this particular day I was there to install gutter guard and I was meant to have a carpenter and a labourer to help me do this 
to anyone who's been on a roof, uh, I've got a working at heights ticket, which means that you know you're always in a harness and you're clipped off. Uh, but it does mean for your pack up and uh, pack down as one person, instead of you one person being on the, the, the roof and passing up 10 boxes of tools, doing it on your own, going up and down a ladder, was so frustrating that at, the mo at that particular time, I was so upset with the situation that I was in. And I did something which is a terrible habit when you're um, working on your own. Is, uh, I was checking Instagram and uh, it was back in the days when SpaceX had uh, started shooting videos of them flipping space rockets, where the, the rockets go up and then they come down and then they flip and actually land. And at that time, I couldn't believe that, that humanity had worked out how to send a rocket into space, flip it around and make it land on itself. But we still hadn't f sorted out a design that keeps leaves out of gutters. Now, I know the first instance, most people, their first reaction would be to install gutter guard. But gutter guard also has issues that a lot of builders are very uncomfortable with. The first one is that they close off maintenance and there are many examples of uh, the, the smaller leaf litter just getting into the gutter and then being the perfect growing medium for lawns, basically, to start growing out of a gutter. The other issue on this particular skillion roof is that water actually picks up speed so quickly that it just shoots straight off the gutter guard, and in this case, straight into the oncoming driveway, which is a bit of a bad look um, for when you're coming home and then you get all the water just hoses you straight as you come in. So it's the first time I thought that gutter guard was a band-aid solution, uh, that roof design wasn't necessarily, you know, we haven't closed the book on it. That here was a, a design that I thought was sublime and the builder in me thought, but it's still not quite perfect. Uh, the, the other issue with that particular type of skillion roof that I've experienced as a builder is that that skillion is often orientated uh, to where, wherever the view is. And quite often in Australia, being in coastal areas, that is wherever the sea is. Uh, and as a common thread in Australia, you get prevailing winds straight off the sea. Uh, and you always get quite an awkward junction between the top eave and the high level windows, which often creates uh, a difficult uh, junction to flash, which often means it leaks under high pressure. So it's a very boring topic to talk about. <laughs> but as we are going to get so actually... many roof specialists listening to this being like, oh my God, he's done it. <laughs> uh, they, uh, for me, it was mostly that when you actually build the actual design, mm. for me, it was almost disappointing. I was like, I, I love Glenn Merkitt's architecture, right? How dare there be mistakes, you know? <laughs> but th there's always a, a balance between uh, design and functionality and insulation. Mm. And that's probably the best resolution that we have. Uh, it's in terms of what is an optimal outcome and then what, what are other outcomes depending on the site location and context. The intent for the building product is to create an architectural device. There aren't many architectural devices that we often, architects often talk about. I think that one of the most common ones, I think it's Brie Soleil. In my mind, I'm thinking of a LaCour building where it has strong solar heat gain and it's used as a way to break off that solar heat gain with good cross ventilation. The device in this particular roof form is meant to exploit the surface tension of water to separate leaves and water before they enter a gutter. So the building product is actually to invent a way to improve roof design through an architectural device. So it sounds like you've got to a point now where you understand it so deeply 
And if you've begun prototyping or finished prototyping and it's ready for market and it's going to be available everywhere and for every roof? Well, there's one thing I, I believe is uh, quite easy to, t to talk about and that is 200 years ago we changed roof design with the advent of corrugated iron and new technology often leads to different types of roof forms. Do I think that we will change the way we design the roof in a thousand years? Absolutely. In 500 years? Absolutely. In 100 years? Absolutely. In 50 years? Probably. 20 years? I don't know. So I'm sure we will change roof design eventually. I don't know how or why. I can imagine when they thought that the terracotta tile was the most amazing invention. Whereas now, if you ask me, if you have a terracotta tile roof and you have a roof leak, I'm like, that is so difficult to work out which tile is causing the roof leak. You know, it's like a needle in a haystack. Yeah. I spent about uh, six years going through the process of prototyping. I had basically a hobby printers and repurposed them for prototyping methods and in a way that I could try and um, print at a commercial standard and then kept growing that collection. I've had a, a bank of printers printing almost non-stop for about three or four years wow. until I finally hit a mould that I was very comfortable with. It's about a thousand days of iteration. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when I'm on a building site and I ask a carpenter to redo something to not make them feel discouraged. I just tell them the story that I tried to do something every day for a thousand days not knowing if it would work, mm. but I kept trying to make it better. Mm. At which point they kind of give up on being frustrated and just go, all right, I'll give it another go. So it, it took an awful long time. 3D printers are quite frustrating and difficult to work with. I feel that I was lucky from a builder's point of view, working in regional areas, Tools often break down and stop working, but in regional areas you don't have the ability to just take it back to a hardware store. You often end up having to pull the, the tool apart and then putting it back together. Mm -hmm. And over time it just gives you like a, you know, the confidence to be able to do your own maintenance. Mm -hmm. And 3D printers break down all the time. I feel that I have a lot of experience with other tools to just pull them apart and put them back together again because they failed so often being quite a, a new emergent technology. Mm -hmm and I was using it in a way that no one else had done before, that there wasn't a roadmap for it. Mm -hmm. So I just had to try and keep trying until, keep testing the failure and seeing and then pushing the boundaries to see if it could also do something. And if, if it could also do that, then to work out if there was something else I could add on to it. So It yeah. sounds like a really perfect example of bringing in your abilities as a builder and having you know, fucked up so many times <laughs> being able to pull things apart and put them back together again with your design skills and knowing how to, to use this iterative process of drawing and building and then drawing again and making again and trying and failing and failing better. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Like, uh, the, like sometimes I think architects, we forget the skills that we learn at architecture school and part of that is the confidence with architecture software. Mm. I feel a lot of young practitioners, like, you know, we really benefit from being comfortable with, with the architecture software that's available to us, that it's actually quite easy to do iterations in a way that, you know, 30, 40 years ago meant redrawing the whole drawing. Mm -hmm. But those incremental iterations are a lot easier to do. But the skills of having software that you're familiar with uh, and a process that just because it didn't work today doesn't mean you can't come back next week with your tutor 
and see if you can actually tease it out and flesh it out a bit better. Mm. Uh, so I, I definitely feel those, those problem solving like skills from architecture school and confidence with computers and software, I certainly would not have been able to do it without that training. Absolutely. And so you've recently, well, maybe it's not so recent anymore, <laughs> these things take a long time. You've yeah. been working on your parents' house in Tassie, the Wattlebird house. So in that house, did you get to use your new product and test out some of these things that you've been battling with over the years? I did, actually. You know, to the best of my knowledge, it's the world's first 3D printed roof flashing that's been installed on a house. From the get-go, I, uh, I'm, to be honest, even me talking about it now, I'm, su I'm surprised and shocked at you know, the level of confidence that my parents had in me. Uh, when I told them that, you know, this is the type of roof design that I would like to do for you, for me to do this, I'm going to invent a building product as I build your house. Mm. This is how I'm going to do it. And still, I can't believe it right now. They said, yes, I think you will, Scott, do that. So just, just go and do that. <laughs> yeah. It's um, amazing, so, isn't it? Amazing trust levels. Uh, it's an unreasonable level of trust. Uh, fortunately, uh, fortunately, it managed to pull through and hold up my end of it. Uh, and... Uh, um, yeah, I actually installed it about two years now, so it's been um, the actual roof flashing I installed as soon as I put the roof up. Uh, I put the roof on immediately before we'd done any walls or anything, just so that I could monitor the, um, uh, the progress of that as it would go through its first two full Tasmanian weather cycles. Uh, it's pretty intense UV in uh, Tasmania, uh, and it cops everything from high wind to salt, uh, very cold weather, snow. Uh, and also uh, incredibly high heat. Uh, so it's a, it was a good baptism of fire, actually. <laughs> Great. So tell us a little bit about yeah, this project, the Wattlebird House, and what it was like. I mean, it was, sounds like it was fantastic working with your parents, you know, that amazing level of trust. Was this their sort of final home, their final forever home that they were moving into? Long story short, it is, but it's not just their home. My folks moved to Tassie about 15 years ago, which in Tasmania means they're still a mainlander, but for the time <laughs> being, they'll, get, they'll be given the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but um, at the time, my parents knew they were going to retire and they were trying to work out where. They knew where they were at the time was not going to be suitable for them long-term for ageing. So they asked me to design a house that would facilitate them aging in place for as long as possible and to uh, facilitate their large family to come and stay with them and visit them regularly. So I'd say it's somewhere between a, a family home for them but also a multi-generational home so that uh, myself, my brothers uh, and all of our families can come and visit them and stay with them for as long as possible. It's mostly been designed around being walker-friendly so that uh, they can stay in that house until they're at a point where if they need significant support within the home, that they would then make the decision to go into a care home, but to actually stay in place. Uh, so it was probably the, the biggest driver is to um, just facilitate a house that would allow someone to age gracefully in and at the same time, something that we often forget about that means to be socially connected, and that includes being socially connected with family members. Mm. Uh, so that was the brief, uh, and at the same time, uh, they 
were also quite demanding that it be beautiful to them. Yeah. Well, that's that's a shame that they wanted it to be beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but from a you know an architectural point of view, you know, I think it's fantastic when the clients are totally on board with that you know design beauty being embedded in it. Mm. And I guess when it comes down to people who are now aging in place, what were some of those the the building elements that you knew that might be a little bit tricky or a really great considerations architecturally that you really wanted to build right for them so that then as they did get older if mobility wasn't an issue or visibility or whatnot that that would definitely be built right in the home? Um, that's a very good question because a lot of the answers to that I feel are quite boring and forgotten about. The, the very first one is in design split levels and internal steps you know like can be lovely gestures to be sympathetic to a landscape but for long-term aging are just too much of a trip hazard so you know it's a very boring thing to set the ground floor plan of a house based on the, the highest point of a council driveway but the council wherever that the high point of that council driveway is that actually became the ground floor and that's a very boring thing to say, but it's actually the only way you can actually have a ground floor plan free of stairs. Another significant part of that on this particular house, uh, and I feel like most architects confront anywhere in Australia, and that is any new land or subdivided land is often very difficult to build on. Uh, that's why it hasn't been built on. Because of those difficult like, site conditions, you're almost forced to put in a lift. Otherwise, you're not going to get access to the vast majority of the site. So on this particular site, it had a, a two-metre fall. So it just meant from the get-go, the council installed vehicle crossover. That had to be the ground floor plan, and we had to make sure we had an allowance for a lift shaft. And they're actually big and bulky, chunky things that are, are hard to feel like they're, you know, they're not just um, whacked on uh, a project. We knew from the get-go that we wanted even the lift itself to feel like another room of the house, that there was design parity uh, for the lift. So instead of the traditional method I feel a lot of architects do, and that is uh, try and almost make the lift shaft invisible uh, or to make it incredibly transparent, to actually make the lift or going into the lift feel like you're going into another room uh, um, and like that it wasn't actually an unpleasant experience that you meant to sort of hold your breath, wait, and then sort of, you know, sigh uh, with relief as you get out. Yeah, so it's a very boring thing, just like no steps and a lift shaft. Uh, but for the vast majority of architectural work, I feel it's very hard to spruik sustainability credentials, and that is its ability for housing stock to remain relevant long-term without actually allowing for a lift core. They're also often the first thing that gets cut out during feasibility studies. But uh, one of the metrics I think is really important and something my family you know, went through with uh, my late grandfather, uh, and that is the cost and expense of um, aged care. You get to a point where the, the costs can be eye-watering. In fact, it can make uh, architecture and building look cheap. Mm -hmm. But when we did the cost analysis, basically if you had a lift shaft, uh, it would enable a client to stay in their house for anywhere between one and 10 years longer. And if you actually factored in the cost of aged care in that one to 10 year matrix, a lift shaft, if it keeps clients at home for only one extra year, has probably paid for itself. 
And from that point of view, it's actually a no-brainer. From a design point of view, it makes sense. It actually just becomes a resourcing concern that the client has. Now, that's not something that an architect can control, but an architect can educate clients on the, you know, the relative, you know, the comparative advantage of actually uh, of why a lift shaft is important. Besides that, then it's the things that make getting around in walkers more comfortable, and that is to have doors that are wide enough for a walker or a wheelchair to gain access into, but also, and I, I know a lot of architects are guilty of doing these big, beautiful doors, but they often become so heavy that they become unmanageable for an aged person to open and close safely. Uh, so it's trying to find a balance between a, a wider door opening, but uh, still manageable, that it's still easy to open and close. And also boring things like handles and knobs, but it's basically to throw away a knob and only use handles. Uh, and uh, just to allow for plenty, as large of an area as you can to permit, you know, generally a walker, but also a wheelchair. Yeah, great. And then during that, uh, during the process of the build, was there anything where, where you did get to a point and you, you, you love the design, obviously, but then it came to a point where there was a little bit of an, an oversight or something that you had to redesign on the fly uh, to make it work, is, which is quite a common thing in most, most projects that you could easily sort out because you know, you're actually part of the building team. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, I think you'd be worried if you didn't experience that because if you haven't, you're probably not testing and probably not pushing you know, to that boundary line that, uh, you know, that there almost always is a, like a, a frontier of how far you can push. If you're not getting, if you're not actually reaching a part where something didn't quite go as planned, then um, uh, perhaps there is the potential to be a bit more adventurous. Mm. There have been several, at some stage I was, we completely flipped the floor plate of uh, uh, upstairs uh, in one of the wings because there was one window that the clients liked so much that they redesigned you know, this pavilion uh, around a window. And uh, as a builder at that stage, I'd already done all the floors and all the checkouts for the waterproofing uh, to, to swap and you know, to, to flip where bathrooms were meant additional checkouts, then build, building up and then cutting walls down and putting additional walls up. Uh, I know at the time I completely agreed with it from a design point of view and then the builder in me was just, just didn't want to think about all the work I had done and that I was going to then redo. I mean there are, there are other aspects about uh, you know one of the tricky parts on a second story of any building is trying to determine the optimal site viewing to get um, nice views uh, like in an area. One of the easy ways as a builder I always try to mitigate that is to try and get the uh, the frame up upstairs, but to not necessarily do all the stud wall where the windows are, so that it gives the client an ability to have a little bit of play in whether or not they want to frame up a particular view. In this particular instance, when we got to the second floor, the actual windows uh, had cut off uh, the top of a mountain peak, uh, all uh, on the northern side of Hobart. Uh, and from a frame, window framing point of view, it looked quite poor. So it meant that the windows had to be moved up in height, but that was where we had uh, a whole bunch of cross bracing installed. And of course, those windows were all aligned with three different windows uh, in other areas. So making one minor modest change to just to uh, frame a view 
meant we had to uh, change the cross bracing, uh, which meant we had to pull walls out uh, and make these subtle adjustments just to get the design right, but it took a bit more time. Yeah, well, I guess that's exactly like you were saying. It's one of those things with an architectural project that you're doing something for the first time and if a client comes to site and they make a decision where they've said, oh, we hadn't considered this this element here, we, we really want you to make these changes, it would be great. It must be great to have the your experience and knowledge as both a builder and an architect that you can explain all the implications of all of these changes that you've just outlined mm-hmm. rather than it you know, might seem like, oh, we'll just put this, this room over here where the window is. You know, that's not, that's not so big. Just, just flip it around so you can ex- explain all of that to them right down to the nitty-gritty. It is a good point. It can, it can be a, like a, an oversight to assume that uh, clients will automatically understand the implications of their instructions. Yeah. That is important and the only way to resolve that is through transparency and that is to go through the process of explaining what time that is. Uh, I still feel architects and builders have a really good way of managing that uh, and that is whenever it comes to those particular views to not do the stud work in that particular area uh, until they have made a decision on site with the architect and the builder about trying to frame a particular view around a window Mm. just so that you can minimise the the snowballing cost implications if the stud work has already gone up or the door or window has already been installed or the plaster has already gone so that the earlier you can um, sort of put yourself at the junction of where you have the most amount of influence Mm. and that's often through communication and those regular site meetings uh, is the best way to have an impact on that. And sometimes those boring process, you know, stories, they're not exciting, they're not sexy, but it's just allowing like an architect to insert themselves right at that junction where they have the most amount of influence to improve the design Mm. without the financial implications. Yeah, but I feel like some of these really great, you know, non-sexy uh, building solutions, which are also architectural solutions, yeah. are almost like you know some of the mechanical solutions that have occurred inside cars, where the driving experience you don't even notice this change, but it's nicer, and people don't necessarily understand why <laughs> because no, it's hidden great. in the background. Yeah, I actually tell the people who I work with is that the best compliment you can give a builder is to tell them it looked simple. <laughs> yeah, right? Right. To make it look like the resolution had so much clarity that everyone looks at it and go, I would have done that. <laughs> they might not have, right? But it made it looked like, you know, it made it look simple. Mm. It's always a positive aspect of design when it comes to when it sort of you know convenes to consensus. And that is that all of a sudden everything makes it look effortless. And then after that you just move on. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I haven't been inside um, the Waterbird House, but driving past it in Sandy Bay going up um, Lipscomb Avenue, it is a beautiful shape, you know, with the two the two roof forms and a very simple, very simple volume. Um, so from the outside, I can say it's, it's definitely beautiful and looks simple. So, but I think there's probably a lot built into it. That's <laughs> that, that particular, the actual uh, form of it is... The height and location was actually determined by the height of the driveway. Mm-hmm. And after that, there were particular Tasmanian elements to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has an internal courtyard that um, 
uh, is oriented directly up to oriented up to, towards the mountain. Uh, the mountain has a, a lot of significance to everyone, and that is before you had your phone, if you're in Hobart, it is your GPS. Uh, before you had the weather update, you actually just had a look to the summit. If you can see the summit and it's a clear sky, you know at least the tw next 20 minutes, they're going to be pretty good. Right? If you're looking up and you can't see it, you know in about 20 minutes, things aren't going to be too good either. So it's kind of your, your GPS, uh, it's your weather station. You basically know where you are in Hobart just by looking and trying to find the mountain. So there's a central courtyard that tries to um, show some respect to that. But at the same time, the weather patterns uh, in Hobart lead themselves to slightly different uh, design solutions. And that is in Sydney and Brisbane, like large open balconies are lovely places to, to inhabit. In Tasmania, you walk outside and you're in, the, you know, you're in the roaring 40s. You walk outside and it's not the same pleasant balcony experience. You kind of open the door and then sometimes it just feels like there's a gust of wind, you know, like howling at you. So the actual internal courtyard is actually to provide shelter in an outdoor area, which is you know, like an otherwise not very usable space. Uh, in fact, from this house, you can see plenty of other balconies and no one ever goes out onto them because they're really cold and unpleasant places to inhabit. So Hobart in Tasmania sort of lends itself to more, uh, to more courtyard type of designs, in my opinion. Mm, that's right. Out of the wind and in the sun. Yeah. Out of the wind and sun, yeah, as much as you can borrow in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I guess it's just been awesome talking to you about finding the this beautiful balance between the built and making all of these things, all of these elements come together in a way that still has this sublime experience and a you know, beautiful, simple uh, resolution. So, yeah, we can't wait to see in the future flat architecture projects that you've got going on. And, um, yeah, it's been really awesome to talk to you. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, architect and builder Scott Flett from Scott Flett Architecture Workshop. We're very grateful for your time and thankful for your contribution to building and architecture and we wish you all the best of success for the Flett flashing. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeleine Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Imagine production team was Abby Hibbard. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result.
The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.